This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hi, this is our preview of the Partially Examined Life, episode 256, part two on Peter Kropotkin's The Conquest of Bread. In this continuation of our previous discussion, we go way into more specific quotes from the text, and here you are going to hear the first seven minutes of that discussion, starting with the preface of the book. This preface written in 1913 that he added conveys one of the standard objections people give to, if you want to say that mutual aid is just natural, communism is sort of the natural endpoint of the search for liberty. You know, of course, we've been trying to get away from kings and other oligarchs to individual rights and that he thinks communism is just the natural endpoint of that. And people here if, might say, well, how come it's never worked that way? How come whenever it's been tried, it's been a horrible messy dictatorship kind of thing. Of course, this was written before those things actually happened. But still, he's asking, given that we've had thousands of years of why have we not seen that? And he wants to say, actually, we see evidence of that all over the place, that you see all sorts of these associations and individual small groups. It's just There's just this other countervailing force of authoritarianism that seems just, you know, people rising up and and taking over. Did you find that convincing? It's a little bit of a non-answer. It's saying that, of course, we see evidence around it. It just hasn't won, but it doesn't really address why it hasn't won. Even if you acknowledge the communal tendencies or you acknowledge that there are small level organizations, self-organizing amongst human beings, why hasn't it won? He still doesn't address that. So, Well, it hasn't won because people don't put their faith in the, what he calls the organizing powers of the working men themselves, right? They have to get control freaky and interfere with a process that might unfold positively if it were let to unfold naturally. You're right, I think. But the question is, why is it so brittle then? Now, it might be that it's it's just been completely subjugated and sort of, it's been enslaved, which may be part of his argument that, look, the majority of people have been functionally enslaved for all of the millennia. And that's why it has never worked because they've never been given the appropriate chance to just do what they would naturally do. I was thinking, sorry, specifically about revolutions because the preface is kind of an account of the repeated failures of that. And those repeated failures have to do with the fact that, as we've mentioned several times, you get the middle class or the bourgeoisie will start to lead things and start to want to, you know, basically establish a state. So it's the establishment of a state, essentially, that is what makes things go awry once the revolution has been initiated. If you look at any analysis of, you talk about revolution, it's revolution, counter-revolution, and reaction, counteraction. And this is maybe where, Dylan, to get back to your initial comment at the beginning of this whole thing in the last episode was, we're going to get to the rubber hits the road where we talk about his naivete. The question is, he's going to be an apologist to some extent for modern socialism and communism in that he's going to try to say, you can't judge what we've seen 
in revolutions and modern communist and socialist movements and label the possibility that anarchistic communism portends, you can't label it with that. You can't paint it with the same brush. So Mark, in the preface on page six, he says, to be correct then, we must say that modern socialism is not yet a hundred years old and that for the first half of these hundred years, two nations only, which stood at the head of the industrial movement, i.e. Britain and France, took part in its elaboration. Both bleeding at that time from the terrible wounds inflicted upon them by 15 years of Napoleonic wars and both enveloped in the great European reaction that had come from the East. And then he says, it was only then, it was only in like 1830s that we have even any kind of articulation of a theoretical socialism, right? And it's based on these three or four figures. So I don't want to say he's an apologist, but given his historical articulation of the ways in which production comes to be consolidated in the hands of you know, a small set of producers. He's making an argument which in his context I think is very reasonable, which is capitalism has had several hundred years to develop out of feudalism. And we can't judge from the vantage point of history where we are now. We can't judge communism and socialism based on what we've seen so far, particularly because it's a reaction to that very system, which is it's not a satisfying response, but I think it's a legitimate one. He's very negative, right, towards communism in the way that we should typically think of it. So if we think of collectivist communism with any kind of state organization, he's very down on that. And he gives a little bit of a history of how those things fail. And it's towards the end of this preface, he basically says that we can see a way forward if we look at free communes. So he'll say on page eight, the free commune would be henceforth the medium in which the ideas of modern socialism may come to realization. The free agro-industrial communes, of which so much was spoken in England and France before 1848, need not be small philan- philansteries. Those are, those are the common houses. This, this that, for- I'm glad you found that word again. The thing that you associate with a commune, a co-op building on a campus or something. Okay. Like that's not ultimately what he's going for. So how is it pronounced? Is it phalansteries? Yeah, like monasteries, but... Phalanstery? I think it's it's phalanstery. Okay, so they need not be small phalansteries or small communities of 2,000 persons. They must be vast agglomerations like Paris or still better, small territories. These communes would federate to constitute nations in some cases and so on. One thing to say is that these observations he makes criticizing Marxian communism, he's doing this all before the Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of the Soviet state. And so he's seen all of those tendencies that you, when I was reading it, at least, I had to constantly remind myself, he's not doing this from the standpoint of 1950. He's not doing this from the standpoint of the Bolshevik Revolution, takes over, betrays the communist ideals, and turns into Stalinism. But he could be. You could have read many of those sentences as if he had was coming from that point of view. Well, apparently, you know, Proudhon, which I didn't read any, but, you know, the, the father of anarchism, Pierre Joseph Proudhon, who Kropotkin is in some ways responding to and elaborating on, apparently wrote very presciently about what authoritarian communism would look like. Yeah, and as a natural, as a tangible consequence of the way Marxist communism was even theoretically, it was a tangible consequence of it. 
If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support and sign up for membership either on our site or on patreon.com slash partiallyexaminelife. Thanks for listening.